morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, positively different radio in the morning. You're with the double L team, Larland. Lawson! Lawson! Guess what I'm thankful for this morning? Oh, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for Mon and Shanna. <laughs> Okay. I was going to say you were thankful. I thought you were going to say you were thankful because I'm back. But no, no, I was going to say I was thankful for a break. No. <laughs> no, I am thankful for Mon and Shanna who filled in while Lawson was Oh, yeah, away. fantastic and I'm, work. And I'm thankful that Lawson is back. Mm-hmm. And that's why I asked them to fill in. Yes. Because they did they great work. They smashed it. Yeah. And, and, so, and so you are grateful that I'm back there? You sound unsure. <laughs> I just want to know, Lars. Like, it's it's been racking Lawson, my brain. Lawson, we're always grateful when you come back. <laughs> oh, that is moving. <laughs> I've been I have been truly touched. That is that is amazing. I've been grateful to be away. <laughs> so how was how was um, Sunny Kingscliff? It was actually sunny. It was actually sunny. It was actually like we had brief periods of rain, but it was like summer up there. Praise God. Like, down here, it's like, you know... You can tell that autumn has arrived. That's right. It's not cold, but autumn has arrived. Definitely. But up there, no, we had one day that was like 29 degrees and sun. Yeah. I was like, I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. It was like the best day ever. Yeah. So, I had a fantastic time. Also, spent some time with some like-minded, spiritual people learning all about the Bible. So, it was was amazing. But I'm super grateful to be, be back in Newcastle getting work done. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. The first question is about to come right now. All right, for 100 points. What did Jesus command his followers to show to their enemies? 0491-064-669 is the number to call if you know the answer. If you do know the answer, you can win yourself either a Faith FM bookmark and bumper sticker, or you can get your 100 points on the board, continue to work through the quiz. If you answer every single question correctly, you can win every single prize. Uh, but again, that uh, that question is for 100 points. What did Jesus command his followers to show their enemies? 0491-064-669. Okay, so join us for that bumper sticker or just join us to play along for <laughs> the... That's uh, right. For, Get for, in. For just just the, the breakfast show crew. That's right. We love to hear from you guys. What's mm-hmm. happening in the world of positively different news? Positively different news. Oh, just just speaking of the breakfast show cl- uh, crew, um, the, pretty much like any church that I I go to at the moment um, in around the around the places. I so I, I went up as I said to to northern New South Wales. I was right on the border in Kingscliff, and there was you know a bunch of young people there studying and learning the Bible. And I talked to a number of them, and they were like, "Oh, we know who you are." And I'm like, "That's strange. How do you know who I am?" And they're like, "You speak on Faith FM. You're lost yes. for Faith FM." So these guys are listening to Faith FM faithfully. So we love them. Um, and I'm like, "Okay, you listen to Faith FM. How come we never hear from you?" And it's it just made me think like we. We love it that you guys listen, and we'd love for you guys to interact as well, because it's a blessing for you. It's a blessing for us. Guys, give us your thoughts and opinions. In other fantastic good news, I covered a story last year about the development of artificial pancreases. So, you did. I did. 
Has there been is there been increasing? Have we, have we learned some new things about this? Yes. So, well, basically, what an artificial pancreas does, the people that it helps the most is those with diabetes, because um, it gives you the ability to properly regulate blood blood sugar and those kinds of things. Um, and now, finally, after the, uh, when I uncovered them uh, last time, they're in a bit of a research and development trial kind of phase. Um, now. Uh, about 200 people in the UK. This is the first country where they're officially being, you know, sold and implemented. 200 people in the UK, um, uh, uh, have one of these artificial pancreases and it is absolutely life-changing. So how this works is that a sensor is placed under the skin. It takes a reading of your blood glucose. Then it sends that information to an insulin pump, um, that adjusts the body's level. And that's pretty much it. It just automatically does the work does that the, the, the pancreas is supposed to do. Does its thing. Um, now, there's a few different testimonies here from uh, some people who who, who wrote in. Um, from a six-year-old Charlotte from uh, Lan- uh, Lancus- Lan- Lancashire, I, I assume. Uh, and then 27-year-old Yasmin from London. And they're saying that it's just revolutionary. Yasmin, in particular, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a 15-year-old. And she describes her experience of having to test like upwards of eight times a day um, during that period from when she's 15 to now as a 27-year-old. 20, uh, and this was really eye-opening because I thought like, oh, man, it must be really tough with diabetes. You have to like test every time before you eat to know, you know, what you can eat or what you need. Um, but she's like, oh, no, like it wasn't just that. It was every time I jumped in the car, every time I went for a walk, every time I did exercise, any time I like any any important event she needs to know. Like she would, should, you know, go to uni and be in class. And it's like, oh, just before class starts, I'll test for diabetes because I don't want to pass out halfway through my lesson, you know, because I'm not eating during this period. Um, essentially, like you're, you're just constantly monitoring, monitoring this problem. Um, and you know, the only way to test for diabetes using like a glucose kit is you have to prick your finger and chuck, you know, your, your tab in there and put it in the machine. And so it's just like a constant burden and a hassle. Um, but yeah, for her now having this artificial pancreas, it's doing all that work pretty much automatically. Yeah, that's awesome. So she, she's just a regular person, and you you feel for these people so much. Like when you consider type uh, type one diabetes, which is one hundred percent uncontrollable, um, and like. Yeah, but they've just been blessed and now they can live a normal life. Even more so for six-year-old Charlotte, like, she is a child. Like, she is yes. a kid. She has to go There's through... life in front of her. She has to go through this rigorous process as well. And it's everything, like, that impedes... Like, her having diabetes impedes her from everything. For Like, as a six-year-old going to school, she has to have someone constantly monitoring her. Think about, like, oh, I have to, you know, I want to go and sleep over at my friend's place. And I have to make sure, like, the parents have to make sure the parents of the friend is constantly monitoring their child because she's six. And, like, just all of these kinds of things. But finally, because of this this technology, like, these people can just live normal lives um obviously like there is type 2 diabetes as well in which this would have an application but the other way to solve type 2 by diabetes is by lifestyle lifestyle like change your lifestyle to change your diet and yes. changes overnight um yeah so for people with this problem um it, like immediately as i said there's only 200 people in the uk who have this artificial pancreas and already like it is working wonders in their life. So as this scales up and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and branches out, like I think in in this article that I was reading, that, which specifically focuses on the UK, like there's 400,000 people living with type 1 diabetes. Yeah, that's a massive number. Yeah, and I would say that there's probably, you know, um, 
in terms of a percentage of population, the same living in Australia. Um, yeah. So, so we just have to think like how many, in fact, one of the, one of my good friends who I know, like who, you know, go to church with and everything, like he's, he's carrying around his, his testing kit all the time. Like this will just immediately solve his problems. Like it's, it's amazing. So fantastic stuff happening in the, the medical right health there. area. Yes. Um, over a, a disease, which up until like, 100 years ago. Oh, you would just be bo- dead. All of these people, 100,000 people that you're talking about would be dead right now. Yeah, that's right. And now we've come up with some systems to monitor it, which is just, yeah. Um, and it's been improving ever since, you know, from the prick in the finger, the regular <laughs> prick in the finger through to what we're doing now. Yeah. It's uh, making just massive changes. Praise the Lord. Like, yeah, so literally a deadly disease it has been pretty much solved, which is awesome. Uh, in other news, okay, so statistics have just been released uh, that have shown that wind and solar have generated over a tenth of global electricity uh, for the first time in its history. That's good. So one-tenth of all electricity is made by wind and by solar. Um, now, that reflects also over the last uh, couple of years an increase of the usage of wind and solar. Uh, it's also seen that nuclear energy and, and bioenergy and whatnot has stayed mostly level, interestingly, because I guess with with uh, with nuclear energy, they're just kind of skipping that and just trying to create nuclear fusion and, and whatnot. Um, but then also I was reading here, and this is going to make Lyle upset, uh, the use of hydro has actually dropped yeah, hydro is like the best renewable resource ever. Why would that drop? <laughs> Running Why would water. Why less hydro? I mean, it's just... Hydro is awesome electricity. Yeah, so it, it's probably because they're struggling to monetize water. And at it's the clean, moment... It's clean, it's renewable. They're finding out ways to monetize the sun so <laughs> and monetize the wind. Yeah, but how does it drop? I mean, if it plateaued and went flat, I could understand that. But why would we be shutting hydro down? Is it because of droughts? Potentially. I want, I want to know the reason behind this, but, you know, obviously you're never going to run the world on hydro. Mm-hmm. But as far as clean renewable energy goes, it's mm-hmm. one of the best and one of the most efficient that you can get. And easily one of the cleanest as well. Yes. You're just running it makes water. the most amazing lakes for recreation. Just <laughs> place to go fishing and swimming and sailing. Water skiing. Water skiing. You name it. Sightseeing. Mm-hmm. This is spectacular lakes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but ultimately, um, this is, this is good news. I am still waiting for the day. I just want to put a big, I just want to put a big propeller in my backyard that powers my yes. whole house. If, if they can just build a giant propeller that's like, seven times as big as my house in my backyard, I would be happy with that. It's, it's interesting that, uh, propellers in backyards haven't taken off. Mm. Uh, there needs to be some work by the government into this because the government has actually really restricted wind power, personal wind power. Mm. I had a friend who had a propeller in his backyard and the government made him take it down. When That's they, crazy. When they found that he was producing electricity during the night. <laughs> you know, because he's getting the, getting the rebate for the re- electricity he was producing through his solar. Yeah. And they're like, how are you producing electricity through your solar system in the middle of the night? He's like, I've got a wind generator. They're like, you can't have that. And then they made him take it they down. They made him take it down, else they were going to fine him lot, you know, bucket loads of money. <gasps> and the thin thought that went through my mind is, okay, just put it on a, on a light switch. But the other thought that went through my mind is, okay, this is about money making. This That's is right. Not about- They've monetized wind. 
I have, this is not about saving the environment. <laughs> it's about money. The, uh, the cynic comes out in me in relationship to, you know, when I see these kinds of things happening, we should be encouraging wind just as much as we encourage solar. Yeah, that's right. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. It is time for the 200-point question for our quiz. Let's hear what the question is. Okay, for 200 points, what twin brother of Jacob was born Harry? If you know Harry... Okay, oh man, I was about to say their name. Uh, if you know Jacob's hairy twin brother, give us a call. 0491-064-669 is the number to call. And for 200 points, you can win yourself an issue of Science Magazine, or you can get those points on the board, continue to work your way through the quiz. But again, that question was, what twin brother of Jacob was born hairy? Nice. All right, so we continue in more serious news to consider the Hillsong implosion, which yes. just doesn't seem to go away. Mm-hmm. So we look at Brian Houston, of course, who is the founder of Hillsong. He's under police investigation for having known about his father's misdeeds with children a long time before he actually revealed that. Uh, that investigation is going to continue and we will see where that goes. We have the sexual misconduct allegations that have caused him to resign his position from the church. And, of course, you know, this wasn't for actually sleeping around, but it was for high-level breaches of the Code of Conduct, Ministerial Code of Conduct. Mm. Now we've got pastors who are saying that he was warned for a long time about Carl Lentz and his indiscretions and did nothing about it. And now we've got pastors who are coming forward and saying that they were bullied. And so this is the story of Vera and Zenia Kasevich, who are from the Ukraine. They founded a church in Kiev, which was a Hillsong church. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a very unorganic connection. They called it Hillsong. They established a relationship with Hillsong in Australia. Hillsong in Australia sent over some financial uh, help and encouragement and like, yep, go for it. We're supporting what you're doing. Uh, go hard over there. So they started this church in the Ukraine. It was kind of ignored up until the point that uh, they became big enough to catch the attention. You know, they're sort of you know bringing in a million dollars a year in donations and so forth. And suddenly Brian Houston noticed that this church actually exists there and it was using his brand. And this comes down to very, very poor brand management to begin with in Mm -hmm. my mind. You Mm -hmm. know, they have let their brand be used by somebody else without any real connection to that particular church. But as a church plant, it was actually independent of the parent organisation here in Australia, but it was supported by, but but it it did receive some support. It grew to be, you know, somewhat of a mega church there in Kiev in the Ukraine. Mm. And of course, because of their connection to Hillsong, they saw themselves as being a Hillsong church because they're using the Hillsong brand and they thought, well, we have Hillsong pastors come and preach for us. And so they invited those pastors to come and preach for conferences and so forth, which is the kind of thing that you do. And Vera and Zenia Kasevich, who were the pastors of this church, they were a, a married couple. They, the first sort of thing that really, really bothered them was that whenever the Hillsong pastors came over, they demanded, first-class airfares. 
So, you know, you're talking about $13,000 for an airfare. Dude, Australia to Europe, that is... That Australia is, Australia's a long way from everywhere. That is the most expensive airfare, like, in the world. Yes. Australia to Europe is, yes. like, the longest flight you can take. That's right. And, yeah, it's first class. I tried to... So, I had broken both my collarbone and my elbow one time. And I tried to get upgraded to business class from like economy was like two and a half grand. I tried to get upgraded to business because I couldn't even move my arms. And they were like, yeah, that's going to be an extra $4,000 because it's like six, like Emirates is like six and a half grand to get into business. And then, yeah, first class is like 12, 30,000 bucks. Absolutely. So this is a frightful amount of money when you stop and think about it. And it's like, okay. Do do they really need that? Is this a wise way of spending God's money? And this That's was right. this was some questions that were going through their mind, you know. And it reminds me. I remember when I was in college, mm-hmm. you know, studying uh, ministry, and our college president used to travel the world all the time. Mm-hmm. He lived on an aeroplane, mm-hmm. and so he, you know, he's the president of a large educational institute. And you would think that you know he would have access to obviously a significant travel budget that he could use to travel around the world. And he did have access to a significant travel budget. And he always flew cattle class. Mm. And he was a big guy who carried more weight than he should have. Mm. And he always flew cattle class and he would sit there in cattle class writing a book. I think he'd write like 55 books while he was on aeroplanes. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Dude, what, a, what an economy guy. You know, and to me, that's somebody who's putting the work of God first mm-hmm. and something that I can admire and something that I can look up to. It. I find it hard to admire somebody who has to travel first class. Mm. Okay, if you are really struggling with jet lag and you are constantly traveling around the world, maybe you can make an argument for business class, but first class, mm. really? Is that necessary? But, anyway. but by the way, we understand, like, if you're inviting a professional speaker to come out and, and speak at your event, like, you probably should pay for their travel, right? Because they're, they're doing you a service. You should pay for their travel, absolutely. 100%. But it's like, this This is like that next but step. To, but to demand first class is going too far. Mm. Okay, so they started to, you know, sort of pull away from their connection with Hillsong over this because they're like, you know, this is just this is just not right. The problem was that they were using the Hillsong brand, and so Hillsong stepped in and said, "Well, actually, you're using our brand, therefore your church belongs to us." Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Well, actually, no, the, the the title deeds are, you know, not in your name. They're not they're not owned by Australia. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually belong to you, and we are independent, and we can pull away if we want to. Mm-hmm. And Hillsong said, well, fine, uh, if you want to do that, we'll start another Hillsong uh, rival one right there in Kiev and shut yours down. Wow. This is pretty pretty rough stuff. And at the same time, you had uh, Vera and Zenia Kasevich who – you know, they were becoming disillusioned with it and they wanted to immigrate to the United States and to take up ministry over there. And so they received a couple of letters in relationship to that, um, which, quote, we can make things very difficult with the American authorities, have a lot to fear. My agenda, this is, this is a quote from Brian Houston, my general manager has a lot of useful information for the U.S. Embassy. So that's pretty <laughs> high-level bullying. That's like that's just blackmail. Yeah, and it's basically hand well, over the assets. They didn't of, really do anything church. wrong in the first place, but that that is just that's terrible. Basically, these guys got forced out of the church they founded. You know, they founded a very successful church. Mm-hmm. They obviously looked at Hillsong and said, you know, we like this model and founded a successful church and then all of this started to happen. Then they were told that they had to sign a non-di- non-disclosure agreement. 
And the question is, you <laughs> know, as, as a minister, you know, as a pastor, have you ever, you know, you've, you've ministered, you've done Bible work, all that kind of stuff. You haven't been asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement. I'm always signing a code of conduct, but <laughs> yeah, a non-disclosure. And no, yet, no, no. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the sign right there. When your church comes to you as a pastor and says, it's time for you to sign a non-disclosure agreement, it's time for you to leave that church. Definitely. And find another one. Mm. Um, now, in in the last few months, we've noticed nine out of the 16 U.S. campuses of Hillsong mm-hmm. have pulled out. Wow. They've left the fold. Oof. So pretty heavy stuff. Uh, and they've taken their property with them. Mm. Uh, Hillsong in Connecticut is facing a lawsuit over $100,000 of unpaid rent. They... Uh, and, and, of course, Hillsong is saying, well, we don't have to pay because the pandemic was on and we weren't using it, but they did have a contract there, so... That is, like, that is the lamest excuse yeah, ever. What do you do? What do you do? Unpaid... <laughs> the pandemic was on. It's like, why are you reserving that space? Anyways. Yeah. Mm. So that's the that's what we're seeing happening with Hillsong, and it's one of the things that I see as being a major disadvantage of a congregational form of church governance, mm. where congregations are all completely independent from each other. It means that you get you end up with the creation of mega churches. It destroys smaller churches mm. and community based churches. It concentrates everything together, and then these churches tend to operate as their own ind- entity, and they become free from any form of accountability. And when there is no accountability, human nature steps in. And human nature, what human nature is, it leads to these kinds of corruptions. Mm. And then, of course, they implode. And when they implode, they bring the, the the teaching of God, they bring the Word of God into tremendous disrepute. Yeah, that's right. I think the, the saddest thing is that ultimately people get hurt. Yes. Like people, people lose their faith. People's salvation is lost. Mm. All right, Bible reading in the United States dropped by 10% in the last year. What? Why? Fact, Why? The, the American Bible Society, when they st- saw these statistics, they thought they were so jarring that they'd actually done the survey wrong and they redid all of the figures to find out that this is the case. And basically what it comes down to is that COVID has meant that people are worshipping at home rather than at church and they have lost their walk with God. People say to me, I don't need to be a Christian. I didn't need to go to church to be a Christian. It turns out you actually do. Hmm. Jesus was right. God was right when he invented the concept of worshipping in community. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. For 300 points, the question is, what product were the Israelites, uh, sorry, what, sorry, what product were the Israelites as slaves in Egypt forced to make? 0491-064-669 is the number to call for 300 points. You can win yourself a pocket sermon or get your points on the board, continue to work your way through the quiz. But again, that question was, what product were the Israelites as slaves of Egypt forced to make? 0491-064-669. Joining us on the phone this morning is author David Edgren. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. David, I've got this book in front of me right now. It's called Outside the Gate. Uh, This is a book that you have newly had published through Science uh, Publishing Company. And it's about the story of Rhoda, and it's for children. I, I find this fascinating. I mean, we have so little in the Bible about Rhoda You've written this children's book about Rhoda. What was your, what was your inspiration for 
taking up the story of Rhoda and looking at the gospel story through her eyes for children. Well, my uh, I've been a biblical storyteller for 20 years, more than that, actually. But since I was a kid, I've been telling Bible stories. And I've always found that if you can eliminate as many things between the audience and the story, um, th- then the, the story will reach them better. If they're the, the more they're like the story. Um, so I would try to find kids in the Bible. To, and then I write um, what I call um, narrative sermons, which are basically they're, they're 30 minutes to read out loud. So I actually read the, um, I've written three of these now, and I've, I read them as sermons uh, when I'm asked to preach places. And um, they're just a story, but they integrate in lots of Bible stories and Bible truth. And um, through the eyes of what I call a sanctified imagination, where of, the, of that kid that's involved in the story. So that book is, yeah, it's about Rhoda. And um, she basically was there the night that Peter escapes from prison and the angel sets him free from prison. And of course, when that story is normally told, it's about Peter. It's about him um, being prayed for by the people back in John Mark's house and then him coming to the gate and knocking on the gate and there being uh, no one there. And then a girl comes to the gate and she hears his voice and then she gets so excited she runs back and tells everyone, Peter's at the gate. And they say, that's impossible. He's in prison. We're praying so that God will protect him. And she said, well, it sounds like Peter. And they say, well, it must be his angel. And she said, well, what's easier? And this is the way I put it in the book. What's easier to believe? That Peter is standing at the gate or that an angel that sounds like Peter is standing at the gate? <laughs> and they go, oh, we better go check. And so they go and look. So that's the story in the Bible, kind of the, the overarching story. But what I do is I build this story around this little girl. She's a slave. She's probably 12 to 15 years old. And slaves back then of that age were basically sold to take their family out of debt so that dad wouldn't have to go into prison and work his debt off that way. Um, and so the child would go and become an indentured servant, and then they that would be their life. And so she starts in the book as she has a real narrative going on in her head. She does internal monologue a lot. And so you learn a lot about her and about her experience and her meeting Jesus when he was on earth. And then her watching the early church form as she's making bread, as she's making the flatbread that they use for communion, and as she's making the wine that they use for communion. She's preparing everything because she's the, the kitchen hand. She's a servant. And the story follows her narrative as she watches communion happen that night. She watches the early church pray for Peter. And she's constantly going to the gate as well and opening the gate and welcoming people. So we get to meet many of the people that come into the house. Um, so the narrative explores the idea of communion, of being a part of the communion of believers, of taking communion and what that actually means through a child's eyes. And then in the long run, the reason it's called Outside the Gate is because she's challenged when she has her first Lord's Supper. Um, they include her this night, and she realizes she's not alone. She has family. She's challenged to take her faith outside the gate and share it with the first person she sees. So she takes the leftover bread and wine and a coat that the, the man used as an illustration in the book, which I'll let the readers experience that. Um, and she takes it out, and she finds a homeless mother and child and tells the story to them of the gospel and walks them through the blood and the, and the flesh of Jesus and eats with them and drinks with them and then gives them the coat and of righteousness and then comes back in the gate and says, anytime you're hungry, come to the gate and knock and I will give you food. I'll give you more. Um, so that's, that's basically the story in a nutshell. Um, but it's to help kids understand what it means to follow Jesus in communion. 
with the church. So I see a couple of things coming through in your um, in, in the philosophy for writing this story. The first thing I see coming through here is that you're building a picture of what the early church would look like. And yeah. normally, you know, a, a historian might stand up the front and say, well, the early church looked like this and they would practice, you know, their worship service in this way and tell us all about it, whereas you've taken that information and put it into the eyes of a child and then told yeah. it through the eyes of a child. The second yeah. thing I see is that you've not just taken a, a picture of you know describing what the early church was like, but you've also taken the gospel message yeah. and described what the gospel message is like through the eyes of a child who is, you know, hearing it for well, I guess the first time, but you know, maybe not the exactly the the full picture for the first time, but definitely learning things all the way through the story. Tell me, David, is it easier to do this by using a character of the Bible that we have less information about than by, say, using a character of the Bible that we have a lot of information about. I mean, as you say, everybody tells this story through the eyes of Peter because we have a lot of information about Peter. We have very little information about Rhoda. Is it actually an, an advantage to this kind of storytelling to use someone that we have less information about? That's a really good question, because one of the things that happens so often when you tell a really well-known story from the Bible is people come up afterwards and say, I can't find that part. Where does, where's that part in the Bible where you said that he said this? But when you use a character like Rhoda, who only has one verse in the whole Bible, um, and it's just like, oh, and she was there, that's it. Yes, you're right. You get to play with it a lot more, and you get to say, this is, this is perhaps what it might have been like to be Rhoda. And, and then the, the reader can get into that state of um, uh, suspension of disbelief quicker. But first thing you said, too, about show, don't tell is the key ingredient to book writing, movie making, storytelling, is if you monologue at people and tell them what they should be thinking, people shut off. But if you show them through a story, um, the character does the teaching and the, the audience hardly notices that they, they just learn something. They just enjoy the story. With the, you know, some people are going to look at this book and the, the, I guess the criticism that might come to mind would be, you know, you've got lots of things in here that the Bible doesn't say. You know, the Bible doesn't say that Rhoda, you know, said this or thought that or that they were having this kind of a meal, you know, whatever it might be on that particular evening. What would you say in response to somebody who says, look, you, you've added to the Bible? I would challenge them to actually read it and, and show me any truth that I've added that's not in the Bible. The dialogue obviously isn't in the Bible, but the reality of what each person says and what they believe about Jesus and what they believe about communion, and it's it's true to the truth in the Bible. It's more than true, I guess you could say, in that it's a story that was very much what we would expect if we were there, but it's not written down anywhere. But all of the wisdom that's revealed through the story and packed tightly into there to learn about the different aspects of the early church and what it means to be the church is, um, it is true. It is in the Bible. It's just in different parts of the Bible. When Paul talks about what it means to follow Christ or when um, one of the disciples says, you know, what, what does it mean to follow you, Jesus? That, those, that's background information, just like what you said with the historical stuff where you say, well, you don't, you know, how do you know that that happened historically, that they, they had a courtyard like that in their house? You say, well, 
through the historical records. That's not in the Bible either, but you can look through history and excavations and stuff and see how they built their properties. Um, so, yeah, I would, I, I've never actually had anyone say about, about this book, um, that, uh, you've added to the Bible. Um, they tend to do that, say those kind of things when you use a story that's more well known. So I really like that first, that other question. <laughs> yeah, it certainly gives you uh, an advantage once again by using Rhoda rather yeah. than uh, Peter to tell this um, this same story right here. Now, you know, I, I guess the reason I asked that question because um, some of us have been watching the uh, the Chosen, and that's been some of the criticism that has come through on the Chosen is that you're saying you know there's there's very little Bible you know that's from the Bible, and there's lots of things that have been added in. And so that's um, some criticism that they've received. But um, coming back to uh, just the nuts and bolts of the book here, uh, how long is the book? How many words? What age group are you targeting with this book? Sure. The book is written at a grade four or five reading level. And so therefore, obviously, a grade three, four, five kid could sit down and just read it. But it's written for families to read together. And so each chapter... In the back of the book, there's a little set of questions that goes with each chapter. And what I really challenge parents or grandparents to do with the story or teachers in the classroom at Christian schools is to read a chapter, read the questions and discuss them, and then say, we'll have the next chapter tomorrow. And you can use it for family worship for a week. So this one has eight chapters, so a little more than a week. Um, so that's the goal, really, is to engage kids with the story in a way that they understand, but also engage the parents with the kids receiving the story so that it becomes part of their family narrative of the story of Rhoda now as part of their story. And next time communion rolls around, they'll have a much greater understanding. Um, it's about 6,000 words, which is about, um, oh, I can't remember how many pages, but it's eight short chapters. So uh, it's, it's readable in about 30, 35 minutes if you just read it out loud. Um, but I, like I said, I invite people not to do that, to actually stretch it out and do a chapter um, per sitting. Sure, sure, absolutely. And, of course, those questions in the back there. I like these questions. You know, you don't, you don't sort of shy away from some of the difficult subjects. Uh, the questions for Chapter 1 is, you know, a child slave. What would the child slave feel like? What would they be going through? What kind of experiences would they have? And, and how do they relate to those kinds of issues? I think that's yeah. – um, I, I, I really like that. You mentioned that there is three different uh, – this is the third, I think you said? You've written yeah, this as a sermon a kind of – Format? Yeah, the, the narrative sermons are basically the difference between a narrative sermon and a normal sermon. For those who have been listening to go to church, a normal sermon is probably what they've seen, um, where somebody stands up and they give an introduction, and then they prove it with three separate points, and then they give a conclusion that repeats the introduction. That's a that's a normal sermon. A um, narrative sermon starts by introducing you to a character, and then you you go through a story together. And in that story, there may be three points that prove things, and there will be one core message. Um, but the listener doesn't feel like they're receiving a sermon. They feel more like they, they get to go into their imagination and, and participate in the story. So that's what it means that it's a narrative sermon. It's, it's a story that is treated with all the respect and preparation that a sermon gets. So that I've prayed and prayed and prayed over this. I did lots of research. I threw away 10 times as much as I used. You know, I, I got it down to where it's, it's the, the kernel of truth rather than just a bit of fluff. Um, and then the, uh, what was the second part of the question? 
I, I think that was – I think you've answered the question right there pretty much. Okay. Um, I was just have a, I have a text message come through from one of our listeners while you've been chatting here uh, with us. And the text message says, Oh, my goodness, I remember being 14 years old and having David Edgren speak at Teen Shed at Western Australian Big Camp. We called it Easter Camp. He told such good stories, riveting. So something you've been doing for a long time, David. I have been doing it a very long time. Yes, I have been doing it since I was 12. My first narrative sermon, I dressed up as um, the prodigal son, and I told the story from my perspective coming home. And something happened in that, that day when, because I was a 12-year-old and I was speaking at church, I told my uncle, who was not a Christian, and he said, oh, I'll come and listen to you. And my grandfather, my uncle's father, he's passed away now, so I, I can tell this without it, having a negative right. He was abusive, very, and uh, verbally and physically, and very violent. And when that boy was coming home and when I was coming home as a 12 year old in the story, and I was talking about practicing, um, I'm just going to, when I see dad coming towards me, I'm just going to say, father, I've sinned against you and against the Lord. Please forgive me. I don't want to be your son anymore. I'll just be your servant. And he's practicing that over and over and over. And then his father starts running at him, but he gets to the gate and he thinks, Oh my goodness, he's got a stick. He's going to hit me. And then his father throws his arms open wide and embraces him and hugs him. And I looked out at my uncle right at that point in the story, not meaning to, just looking out at the audience, and tears were just pouring down his face. Mm. And I went, I do not know what just happened. Like, as a 12-year-old, I didn't even process it till later going, I just thought, why is Uncle Tim crying? And then I finished the story, and, you know, upon reflection, I thought, that story told by Jesus as, a sanctified imagination narrative. It's not a true story in the sense that it actually happened. It's a story in the sense that Jesus said there were once two sons and they had a father. And he did. He, he narrates this story to do something similar to the minds of his listeners. It did to my uncle what the story was supposed to do. And, and it changed me forever. I thought, man, if I ever get asked to come up on the stage again, I'm going to tell another story. And so that's what I've been doing for well, I'm 50 this year. So this is 38 years. How many of these have been published? There's three uh, in that series. I have 10 books, but the three in that series are The Perfect Lamb, which is about the cross, understanding the cross for kids, and then the, and they're all that same length. The second one is called um, Just Believe, and it's the story of Talitha, the girl that Jesus raises from the dead, and it's about resurrection. So you have the cross, resurrection, and then the early church is the third one, Rhoda, which is uh, outside the gate. That's amazing, David. Uh, very quickly, how do we get a hold of these books? You can do it online. I believe you guys probably have a better idea of the, the website. I think, um, I'm not sure which website, whether it's Science Publishing's website or the ABC Adventist Book Centers, um, dot com dot au would have it. Um, if you live near a local Adventist Book Center, you can go down there and they'll definitely have copies. Um, I was just in one uh, about a week ago and, and they had a little display of them. Um, so yeah, I would, um, have a look, just Google it, just Google, um, the, the, um, outside the gate, David Edgren, and it'll definitely come up with how to purchase it. Fantastic stuff. So outside the gate by David Edgren, it's the, uh, um, one of a three part series of stories written for children. And of course, David Edgren is the author. I think he said there of a number of different books, David, thank you so much for joining us here on the breakfast show. We'll Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.